Let us hear then God's word. <clears throat> Titus 1, beginning in verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, well, Paul here has been warning Titus about various things. He started with the circumcision, which likely is a reference to the Judaizers. And you recall that these were Jews who did accept Jesus as Messiah. But they insisted that Gentiles had, in essence, to become Jews before they can become fully saved. And so they had to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and so forth. Well, Paul basically is telling Titus, right, you've got to speak against this. This is not right. So then secondly, he warns Titus about the Cretans. The Cretan culture was filled with lies, filled with beast-like behavior, laziness, and they were living to satisfy their own appetites. And so it's not just wrong theology, not just adding to the gospel, but how they were living that uh, Titus must address. And thirdly, as we talked about last time, Paul warns Titus about the Jews. Likely, there is a distinction. He says circumcision in verse 10. He says Jew here in verse 14. So they're probably referring to something different, which when you combine with 1 Timothy, uh, sounds like they're talking about the Jewish teaching that would come from unbelieving Jews, but even some possible believing Jews that would still hold on to the, uh, the, these myths. What they would do is they would speculate about the lives of the early fathers. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to uh, try to understand better what happened, but that is not the same as the authority of scriptures. And so they would speculate about the early fathers like Adam and Eve and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and so forth. And they use these apocryphal writings to guide them in this understanding. They also greatly expanded on numerology, looking for secret codes and messages in the Bible rather than looking at what the basic uh, passage is teaching. They also would use genealogical descent to establish modern-day relevance for people and families. And so um, as you combine this again with what we see in 1 Timothy, uh, this is likely what Paul is instructing Titus to do here in this way. And so he advises him to stand up against all these false teachings and even other things and to uphold the truth. Christ alone came to save. We are saved by faith alone, in him alone, in scripture alone is our final authority. And 
We're all descended from Abraham. It doesn't matter what our, our physical line is, really, in the end. And we're all called to be holy. Well, <clears throat> we face some very similar things today. People who add to the gospel, people who add to the scriptures, people who look for secret messages, people who trust in human achievement, and people who, frankly, are just wicked and ungodly. And so the words to Titus are very relevant for us today. Well, last time, we spent most of the time on the first half of verse 14. And I touched on the second half, but I I mentioned that it's going to spill into these next two verses. And so uh, that's what we will see here this evening. Paul is speaking about asceticism. Those who avoid certain things in the world. And what they do is they add laws to God's law and think they're somehow better. They're extra spiritual. Now, some obvious examples that we could think of for today is you think of the monks, you think of the nuns in the monasteries and convents and so forth. You think of the, uh, the hermits that would uh, live in caves or on the top of a rock formation and they would do their religious activities and spiritual things to be extra pleasing to the Lord. Even in the Catholic Church, you talk about works of super arrogation, whether or not you're a monk or none. Um, but these are obvious examples. But, you know, every one of us sitting here does the same thing. We add commands to God's law. In the past, I have talked about 11th commandments. God gave us the Ten Commandments, but we like to add to that. And so we can uh, go right around the room, and every one of us could easily list off five of them if we were aware of ourselves. Okay. We add things to God's law to make us feel extra spiritual. So let me give you a few examples. Some people think, because I am always early and never late to anything, that I am more spiritual. Conversely, those who think they're fashionably late and they're more spiritual. You have those who say, well, we have lots of children. We're keeping the cultural mandate, and so we are better than and others say well um, Paul says it's better to be single so I am more spiritual if I am not married with children you have those who say that uh, you can't touch alcohol or dance or cards or any of these kinds of things that makes me more spiritual others say it depends on how you dress and so some will go to the extreme of not wearing any buttons or no color except blue or black and white or wearing a head covering, or more in our circles, right? If you don't wear a dress, then, you know, there's something wrong with you. And we wear dresses to everything, or we wear suits to everything when we come to worship, or, you know, whatever. Um, Conversely, you go to other places, and they wear shorts and flip-flops, and they say that they are more spiritual. A very common thing, of course, is for people to go to church, and uh, not just on Sunday, but, you know, we do five extra things a week. We are more spiritual than those of you who only do three, or whatever, right? You have those who say, well, we follow the courting steps exactly. We don't date. Then you have others who say, well, you know, we celebrate Christmas, 
And we do it a certain way. And if you don't do it this way, then there's something wrong with you. And we're more spiritual because we do it this way. And others say, well, we don't celebrate Christmas at all. We're more spiritual. Do you see the point? It really can be about anything. And some of these things are good in and of themselves. But what happens is we take an application of God's law and we make that a new law. Rather than seeing it as an application and sticking with the ten that we've been given, we then add to it and we say we are now more spiritual than someone else. Okay? And so this is what Paul is addressing. This is legalism, really, in the end. This is evidence that we are not trusting in Christ. We are trusting in something that I do or don't do. Now, when we do this, and again, we all do it, we then have blind spots, don't we? We might focus on this, and we do really well over here, and we think we're really spiritual because we do really well over here, but then we neglect these other things. So if we go back to verses 6 to 9, for example, hey, maybe we are greedy for money, or maybe we don't show hospitality. Okay? Again, it, it can be really about anything, but we all will have blind spots. Maybe we act like the world when it comes to alcohol or sports or entertainment. Maybe we're sloppy in our doctrine. Maybe we justify white lies or wooden swearing. But the point is, we might think we're really good over here as we follow our 11th commandments, but then we ignore the other commands that God gives us. This is true for us all. But Paul here is addressing specifically the, these groups of ascetics, these people who are um, adding to what God had said, or you could also say it this way, they didn't account for Christ's coming. And so, as I go along, I'll explain that here. Paul addresses a few pertinent ideas uh, in Crete. And, uh, again, we could go down all kinds of paths, and I've just given you a whole bunch of them. Uh, but he's going to focus on some things, and we'll try to make some applications. So, let, let's start here, again, at, with verse 14. In the second half of it, and notice what he says. He says, right, we start with the initial verb, not giving heed. Right, not just the Jewish fables, but also commandments of men who turn from the truth. And so Paul says, do not follow people who demand that you do what they do. Let me give you an example. Televangelists do this all the time, don't they? I'm sure probably all of us have watched them at least once. Right, but they get up there and they say, send me your money, your love gifts. You know, They put it in nice attractive language and you need to be like me you need to obey God in the way that I say is important but let's come closer to home if you have a controlling spouse <clears throat> they do the same thing if you have a controlling boss or friends that like to just tell you what to do um, the idea is simply if you do not do whatever it is that so-and-so says, then I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm going to make life hard. I'm not going to promote you or whatever it happens to be. But these people have now commanded you to do something many times that is away from the truth, or at least is upholding their 11th commandments, and it's at least some ways off from the truth. 
Well, let's read verse 15 and, and focus our attention here a little bit. Uh, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now, <clears throat> notice the language Paul uses here. He uses the word pure, he uses the word defiled. Your translation may say unclean. The false teachers here were commanding others to avoid things that defile. And in particular, this would be various foods, as well as not touching certain things. You can become unclean if you do. Now, as we seek to make application for ourselves, we, we have to recognize that we live in a very different culture in this way. Okay, now, maybe 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we could make some more direct application. But we live in a culture that basically says, do whatever you want. Okay, there, there, there's nothing you can't touch or you can't do. This is the message of our culture. And, and we certainly see that with the gay agenda, the sexual revolution, these kind of things. But all that said, and, and there's definitely truth to that, we still have militant vegetarians in our midst, don't we? Hey, if you eat meat, oh boy, some people are, you know, they might want to kill you. Hey, if you don't wear a mask, ugh, you know, you can't be anywhere near me. Hey, same ideas. Or the militant environmentalists, those who demand that you boycott this, that, or the other. Hey, but it also includes not just things you touch or don't touch, but it also included holy days. And uh, today, of course, even um, in many of our Protestant churches, we all ha have all kinds of holy days, but especially in the Catholic Church, almost every day of the year is a holy day <laughs> in one way or another. Um, <clears throat> again, it's, it's so easy to go off in other places because we're trying to make application. Let's, let's keep our narrowed focus. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 here a moment. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, sorry, and verse 3. 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. I've read this here just recently. Again, it says, and, and by the way, I want to come back to this, so stick something here. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. Those are the two key things that Paul mentions in Ephesus. Uh, Crete may have been slightly different, but some of the same ideas uh, were present there. And so abstain from foods, abstain from marriage, forbid marriage. Now, we don't totally know what this means. You might remember I, I spoke on this when we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, some people think it's just because... There was a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, and that was what's behind this forbidding of marriage. Other people say, no, celibacy is better, and that was the mindset, because matter is evil, right, this Greek thought, and so, so don't get married. Um, or some would say that sexual relations are bad, they're unclean, right? So whatever it was, Paul was addressing this with Timothy, and quite possibly he was addressing some of the same things with Titus. Let's turn then to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, let's start our reading in verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? 
do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now remember, Colossae wasn't that far from Ephesus, okay, 100 miles or something like that. It's a very similar things to what we see in uh, 1 Timothy 4. Um, but again, you see this idea, don't touch. You, you can't be unclean, right? And, and if you touch this, you will be unclean. And, and it gives an appearance of spirituality. Right? We are more spiritual than those people because we don't touch whatever, or we don't eat whatever, or we don't do something. But it's false. It has no value, Paul says, in the end. Let's go back to verse 16 then. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Note Sabbaths is plural there. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, I think this is very significant because notice this especially calls attention to Old Testament laws. Now, it is true that even in Gentile society, they had similar kinds of laws among similar, uh, some groups, some ascetic groups. But it sure sounds like that we're talking about the Old Testament laws. And Paul here is speaking to believers, probably largely Gentile believers, in Colossae, saying, don't listen to Jews. Don't listen to what they're telling you about the use of Old Testament law now that Christ has come. The substance has come. So don't let anybody talk to you about food, okay, verse 16. Don't let them judge you about what you drink or your festivals, your feasts, your new moons. Sabbaths here is not talking about the Sabbath. Paul is using this to refer to all the other Sabbaths that were associated with the feasts and festivals. You will often hear people use this verse to justify that we don't have to keep the fourth commandment anymore. But they're missing Paul's point. That, that's not what he's talking about. These are Sabbaths, plural. So Paul here is opposing those who say that we must keep these old covenant laws, these clean and unclean laws, these food laws, the feast days, the holy days. Or to put it in more specific language, you can't have lobster to eat. You can't have bacon. You can't have shrimp. You can't have ham loaf or ham and green beans and potatoes like we did for lunch today. You can't do that. That was forbidden in the Old Covenant. Add to that, the Old Covenant said that sexual relations will make you unclean. You'd be unclean until sundown. If you go out hunting and you kill a deer or a turkey or a chicken or whatever it is, that's going to make you unclean. For a period of time. Women who have their monthly discharge are made unclean. If you go to the marketplace and you touch a Gentile, then you have become unclean. Now that one was expanded upon. An 11th commandment, you could say, um, isn't quite so specifically stated in the scriptures. So here are some some of the specific commands uh, that were given. Well, Paul is saying, look, Jesus came. 
And he's obeyed perfectly for us. And so we don't have to keep these laws anymore. We are clean in Christ. We are pure. We are undefiled. We are perfect because we are declared to be righteous in Christ. He was perfect for us and God treats us as perfect. And so we don't have to keep these laws anymore. They were to prepare us for the coming of Christ. They were to keep us separate from sin, to keep us separate from Gentiles. But now Christ has come. We don't have to keep these laws any longer. Okay. So, this does not justify sinful behavior. Right? We're talking about taking a law that God gave for a period of time, and now it's being set aside now that Christ has come. But that doesn't mean we set aside all the laws. And so this does not justify setting aside all the Old Testament. We're a New Testament church or something like that. It's just these Old Testament ceremonial laws are no longer binding. Not just the sacrifices, but also the clean and unclean laws and the food laws and so forth. Furthermore, we don't have to keep all the feasts and festivals. There are no holy days except for the one, the Lord's Day. Let's turn a moment to Acts chapter 15. And notice how uh, this is worded. This is, of course, the Jerusalem Council, as we call it. And the question about Gentiles and, and should they be included in in the same way as, as Jews. And so, note especially verse 8, Acts 15, verse 8. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, referring to Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Remember, that was Peter speaking in regard to Cornelius. And Paul goes on with Barnabas to say similar things. The point is, there's no Jew or Gentile distinction, so we don't need the food laws anymore. We don't need the clean and unclean laws anymore. And at least part of what they were for was to distinguish us from uh, the unbeliever. But all now are sons of Abraham. Okay? All who believe in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are sons and daughters of Abraham. And so now that the substance has come, now that these things are fulfilled in Christ, they are no longer necessary. And so blood and semen no longer defile. It did, but not anymore. Certain animals no longer are unclean. All these holy days are no longer binding on us. And so for us, we celebrate Christmas or Monday Thursday or Reformation Day or Epiphany or whatever it is. And, and all that's fine. But they're not binding on us. Let's turn to Mark chapter 7. <clears throat> now as we're turning there, let me just add this, this comment. Because they're not binding, some people say we should not do them. But I do think following the pattern of the remembering certain things, like the Passover... It is okay for us to include these. I think the regular principle allows us to do that. But some will say, no, we can't. All right, now here in Mark 7, um, notice the words of Jesus. And uh, this is, let's begin in verse 18 of Mark 7. 
So he said to them, referring to his disciples, Are ye thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. So here he's talking about these clean and unclean laws, right? And people were saying, basically, you need to keep them and so forth. And Jesus says, no, you don't, not anymore. Now, let me make two brief comments. That last part there, thus purifying all foods. Sometimes you'll hear people say, there is a textual variant there. And so we don't know exactly what it means. And so the food laws are still in place. You'll actually hear that argument from some Christians. But let me respond by saying this. There is a textual variant there. But the only question is, is it past tense or present tense? Is it a participle or a finite verb? It does not change the essential meaning of, of that clause. Okay, So uh, whether you say, thus purifying all foods, or he is purifying all foods, that doesn't change the meaning. Okay? And then the other question is, did Jesus say this or did Mark? And in the end, it doesn't matter. Mark was inspired and, and so forth. So uh, just uh, we have uh, heard this argument before, and maybe you have as well. But food laws are done away with. So let's come back then to 1 Timothy and chapter 4. And let me now uh, expand, uh, read what Paul expands upon here and then bring us back to where we started. In 1 Timothy 4, again beginning in verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. All right, do you see the point? All animals are good. That's how God made it. Genesis 1, verse 31. All is good, very good. That's how it started. And now that Christ has come, we've gone back to that. And so you can have bacon with your eggs and so forth. You can have pork and kraut at uh, your New Year's celebration. You can have a shrimp cocktail at your business meeting or whatever it is. We're going back to the way it was. Yes, there was a time of separating clean and unclean, but that time is gone. Same thing could be said about sexual relations. God said it'd make you unclean for the day. That doesn't apply to us anymore. If you're gutting a deer in November during hunting season or something like that, you're not prevented from fellowship until a certain period of time has elapsed or certain sacrifices are given, or whatever. Now, you might want to shower and clean up, but you're not ceremonially unclean. All of that is done with. And so God made all of these things and said, you can eat meat in Genesis 9, and so all of these things are permitted for us. Abstaining from meat, abstaining from these things, does not make us more spiritual. And so don't refuse them. Instead, refuse them, re- receive them with thanksgiving. 
All right, now I've done a rather lengthy rabbit trail here, but I, I think it was necessary to help us to now be able to understand what Paul is saying in Titus. So let's come back here now. And in verse 15, he starts by saying, To the pure, all things are pure. Well, who are pure? Not those who avoid foods, not those who avoid Gentiles. Those who are pure are the true believer. The true believer who is declared to be righteous, declared to be holy, declared to be pure and sinless because of Christ's work on our behalf, we are seen as pure now. We're not actually pure, but we're declared to be pure. And that's what Paul is talking about. And because we are pure in Christ, everything else is pure to us. We don't have to avoid those things. They're not going to make us impure. They're just going to go into our stomach and be eliminated. Okay? Or whatever it happens to be. So again, you know, pagan lobsters, sexual relations, butchering chickens, not celebrating the new moon or various holidays. Those things aren't going to make you pure. They're not going to make you unpure either because we are declared to be pure and holy and righteous in Christ. Now, we're coming up on a holy day in our culture, aren't we? Valentine's Day. And uh, there are some people who would say, if you do not celebrate this holiday, then you are just the worst thing in the world, right? If you do not give flowers to your spouse, then something is wrong. But look, it's not sinful if you don't give them a box of chocolates. Now, they might not be very happy with you, but it's not sinful because we are not bound to keep that holy day. Same thing could be said about Veterans Day or even Thanksgiving. We should be thankful for our spouses and tell them. We should be thankful for those who have fought for our freedom. We should be thankful that God provides for us. But the only holy day we are required to keep is the Lord's Day. And so, again, we are pure, and we are to then keep the Ten Commandments, not the extra ones that we might add. <laughs> again, we're, it's not that we're doing whatever we want, but we are pure in Christ. And so whether you keep this or the other or don't keep that or the other, then that's not going to change our status. On the other hand, those who are defiled, as he says here, Okay. Those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. And so they're defiled not because they've touched a dead person, not because they bumped into a Gentile at the store, not because their wife is menstruating or they ate bacon with their eggs. It's because they're an unbeliever. They have not trusted in Christ. Christ's perfection has not been imputed to them. And so for the unbeliever, everything he or she does or does not do defiles them. They're unclean on the inside. And so their heart is hard. Their mind is corrupted. Their conscience is seared. And so it doesn't matter what they do or don't do. It's not going to change. The only thing that will change is if they trust in Christ. And so this is the distinction that Paul is making. Let's turn a moment here now to Matthew chapter 23. <clears throat> Jesus says these ideas 
here to the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, if you look at verse 25, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. And so for the defiled, for the unbeliever, who is only concerned with outward appearance, it really makes no difference. But for the true believer, who has their inside cleansed through Christ, now, whatever we do is pure, because it's through Christ. All right, now let's come back to Titus. And uh, verse 16, he continues, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So obviously Paul's continuing this thought that I've just been saying. They claim to know God. So certainly we could talk about Jews who do that, Pharisees, the scribes that we just read. We could talk about false believers, those who think they are Christians but really are not. Uh, But simply unbelievers can't do anything right. They can't do anything righteous. All they do is sinful. Every act, whether religious or not, whether outwardly good or not, whether respected or not. And it's because they are not righteous in Christ. They are totally depraved. And so every thought, word, and deed is detestable or abominable, as the New King James says. Everything they do is disobedient and rebellious. Everything they do is disqualifying. It shows that they are unfit because they have not trusted in Christ. They are rejected by God. And so on the one hand, for the believer, nothing can change our holiness in God's sight. Because God sees us as perfect in Christ. We can go through all kinds of pig pens, and that's not going to change how God sees us. That doesn't mean we should go running through pig pens. Right? It doesn't mean we just sin all the more the grace may abound. Right? That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is there is nothing that can sully our righteousness because Christ does not change. But for the unbeliever, nothing can be considered holy in God's sight that they do. Everything is sinful because they are still considered as united to Adam. And so avoiding foods, washing cups, abstinence, all these things are useless. Helping others, loving your children, curing cancer, defending the innocent, all these good things are actually defiling for the unbeliever because everything we do is imperfect. Even the best things we do are laced with sin. God overlooks that because he sees Christ in us. But he doesn't overlook that for the unbeliever. And so when we add to God's law then, and we say, I am more spiritual because I do this or I don't do that, I mean, it's just, it's comical, really. It makes no sense. Because our holiness is based in Christ and his perfection. Okay. And so how can our outward actions make us more clean than Jesus' perfect life? They can't. 
All of these things in the end are useless. None make you better than another believer. Because we are all equal in our sin, we are all equal in salvation, we are equal in God's eyes. And so don't go around thinking you are better than. If you do, it's actually an evidence that you are still defiled. Rest in Christ's obedience. Bask in the freedoms that he has secured for us. Freedom now to obey our God and be pleasing to him. Rejoice that we don't have to keep the clean and unclean laws. I very much enjoyed our our ham for lunch today. Rejoice in the fact that we don't have to keep all these various holy days or sacrifices. Jesus has fulfilled them. But once again, this doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. That's not Paul's point. Don't take these ideas and run too far with them. Remember verses 6 to 9? Remember what he has said up to this point? Right? He must oppose false teaching. And in chapter 2, everyone in the household must live righteously. So we are not talking about antinomianism here. We are just opposing asceticism and legalism. All right. Let me um, conclude our our, uh, discussion here tonight in this way. Let's take a step back from this immediate point and let us um, just observe what Paul has done here in these uh, seven verses. Paul has taught Titus to to know the truth so that he can oppose those who teach what is wrong. Let me put it this way. Paul is the seminary professor, and Titus is the student, and he then is to go teach the elders how to do this. Okay. He is teaching Titus, and then by extension to the elders, to be discerning what is true, what is wrong, what is divine, what is human, what is revelation, what is tradition. He is teaching them. What is inward versus what is outward? What is spiritual versus what is ritual? He is teaching them what a transformed life will look like. And opposing that then to just formalities and outward religion and even legalism and license. And so let me read here then just a moment from from John Stott and his words in this way. He says, this is why the key institution in the church is the seminary or theological college. In every country, the church is a reflection of its seminaries. All the church's future pastors and teachers pass through a seminary. Now, there are a few exceptions, but it is there that they are either made or marred, either equipped and inspired or ruined. Therefore, we should set ourselves to capture the seminaries of the world for evangelical faith, academic excellence, and personal godliness. There is no better strategy for the reform and renewal of the church. Now, I do think he overstates it a little bit, but his point is is very significant. When I went to seminary, and this, you know, 25 years ago, uh, I'm like, okay... Are there good ones out there? 
There are some. Unfortunately, there are even fewer to find now. We are living in a country whose seminaries have been captured by false teaching. Not everyone and not in every way. But do you you see this principle? Paul is, in essence, the seminary professor. And Titus is the student who then is to instruct the local church people. It's the same pattern that we are trying to follow today, whether uh, uh, we can argue how good it's being done today. But do you see this pattern? And so I am the Titus, as it were, here in your midst. I am the one who has been instructed by Paul, as it were. And it is my responsibility to instruct the elders and all of you. And they then, in turn, are to instruct you. And certainly we can talk about other leaders in the church. We can talk about um, uh, the different aspects of how this works itself out. And then, of course, we should be doing this in our homes and so on, too. So I thought he made a very helpful point, and I thought it would be nice for us to conclude this section with that idea. It's easy for us to talk about the bad false teaching out there, but how is it impacting us? And what seminaries are we uh, a part of or supporting or whatever? And how is that uh, to be upheld? So anyway, obviously we could say a whole lot more about that. But just uh, a few thoughts here as we bring this section to a conclusion. So next time, Lord willing, we will turn to the household and these five different aspects of the household that Paul is going to address here with Titus. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you again for your word, and uh, we thank you for uh, this teaching. We are thankful, uh, most of all, for Christ and his perfect life, that he obeyed every one of your laws, the, the, the ones that are summarized in the Ten Commandments, but all the specific ones also that are based upon the Ten Commandments. We are thankful, Lord, that... Um, that Christ has kept it in every way. And we are thankful too, Lord, that you set things up, that we would not only be united to Adam, but that we could also be united to Christ. Not only would we be viewed as sinners simply because of what Adam did, but then we could be seen as saints because of what Christ did. Lord, we we truly marvel at at your plan and how uh, you have set up this idea of the covenant. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for it. We are thankful that we can sit here today, even in all of our our sin and filth and disobedience, and you still see us as righteous in your sight as your people. Lord, may this not motivate us to license and doing whatever we please, but may it motivate us to greater and godly living. But we do pray then, Lord, that you would help us to um, heed these words of Paul, that we would understand these truths, teach these truths, live by these truths, and that we would root out in us those 11th commandments, those things that we do that we think somehow makes us even more spiritual and especially more spiritual than the next person. Forgive us for these sins. Forgive us for this arrogance. Forgive us for um, more or less thumbing our nose at the righteousness of Christ. 
Help us, Lord, to see them. Help us, Lord, to let go of these things and uh, rest in you, resting in what Christ has done for us. And may this freedom then uh, motivate us to love and good deeds and obeying the Ten Commandments you have given. And uh, so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this way. Uh, We pray that you would help us then to stand opposed to what is false in our culture and in our churches that we might uphold the truth and live by it for your honor, for your glory, and for um, the extension of your kingdom. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.